Welcome to Overtime, presented by Vital C, pioneer of the peak stage movement. During this program, we visit with world-class athletes, learning about their playing careers and what came after they hung up their cleats. Who is better at redefining, repurposing, and reinventing themselves than athletes? How does a boy from Detroit, Michigan, youngest of 10 children in his family, grow up to become one of the National Football League's greatest offensive linemen, helping to establish rushing records for one of the sport's best backs and establishing a standard of excellence for his position that has rarely been matched in the history of the game. Joe DeLamalier is a rare breed. He is a man who not only competed at an extremely high level wherever he played, but did so with humility, dedication, distinction, longevity, consistency, enthusiastically, and rarely matched skill. A man who has led the fight to help others through difficult health and financial times. A man for all seasons. Welcome, Joseph. Thanks, Len. How are you doing? I am doing extremely well today, sir. Me too. Let's start with your early life. Growing up in a family of 10 children, you were the baby boy. One bathroom, no lock. Talk to us a little bit about what it was like to grow up in the Delamalier family. Well, I was I was very fortunate because I was the last of the boys. I, I'm the ninth of 10 kids. I had a younger sister. So it was, oh, he must have had a, you know, oh, that's kind of tough with 10 people. Now. I had a maid because everybody took care of me because they thought I was a baby. So uh, when I was, when we grew up in the schools, you know how schools are, kids pick on other kids. I never had that happen once. Everybody, like if they're going to do something, they say, oh, don't, don't touch him. He's got four older brothers. Just let him go. So I, I, I always had a maiden. I was better than most of the kids because I played with my brothers all the time. So they were older. So I, I was used to competing against older kids my whole life. So it really, it really was a big advantage for me. So I, I was thankful for that. Now, your dad ran a bar in, local, in nearby Warren, Michigan. Right. For three years. And his hours started sometimes at 7 in the morning, and sometimes he didn't get home till 2.30 in, in, you know, in the early morning. Right. So he taught you about work and the work ethic. Yeah, he did. The, the bar is actually still there. My, my, yeah. nephew, my nephews and nieces run it. It's been there like 70-some years. But um, my dad's bar was open from 7 in the morning, 2.30 at night, seven days a week, closed Christmas, Thanksgiving, and Easter. So what, when the kids got a little bit older, once you turn five, you go to work with them, with my dad. And then he'd, you'd fill salt and pepper shakers, mustard and ketchup. Uh, he'd get you up like at six, bring us back home at 7.30. None of us went, none of us went to kindergarten because my dad said that was overrated. He said, you don't need it. He said, what are you going to be doing? Coloring books and when you're 20? Come in here and learn how to do this stuff. So each kid had their turn with my dad. That was our special time with him. Now, your mom taught you teamwork, and part of that teamwork was using that bathroom with the oh, yeah. other siblings. Yeah, you had, to, 
I, I got a kick out of it this year because they said uh, COVID and everything. All these, hey, you better be careful. Keep that mask on. I said, what are you kidding me? We had ten kids with five toothbrushes. And nobody <laughs> yeah. got and nobody got sick ever. But my mother would always say, hey, pecking order. There's a pecking order in this family. Oldest, the youngest, and the oldest got to go first. Female first before the males. So that's how we grew up. Uh, and we still do it to this. My wife and my wife and I. She lives around the block from me, so we've known each other. So it was the same type of deal in their family. They had eight kids, and uh, her dad was a fire chief. So we had a lot of discipline. I can imagine. Your mom also taught you to pray. She taught you that was very, very important. Oh yeah, she's devout Catholic, and uh, people won't believe this. When a thunderstorm would come in the middle of the night. She'd wake us up so she got oh gotta say some prayers so the guy don't hit this house with light, lightning or get a, a storm blow your house down. So one in the morning, two in the morning, we wake up, have to say a rosary with her, and then go back to bed. <laughs> we go, Jeez, oh man, are you kidding me? But those were some of our best uh, memories as a family because we still talk about it. All the kids when we get together, brothers and sisters. But uh, it was good. It was fun. Now. You begin your football career um, at that time, and you eventually play for Center Line in St. Clement um, at high school. It was a very yeah, was, small school. Yeah, it was a Catholic school. It was Center Line St. Clement. And yes. uh, Center Line is a city within a city. It's surrounded by Detroit. It's one mile by one mile. And in Center Line, um, it's called Center Line because that's where the center lines of the road started. Well, because Chrysler and Ford and all that was right there. Chrysler was right at the end of the block where we lived. So that's where Centerline came in. That's how it became Centerline. That's how they taught people how to drive. Don't cross the line, double yellow, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it became Centerline. So yeah. now, now it was part of the Detroit Catholic League, which was a very, very competitive league, very tough league too. Yeah, we had a lot of great players out of there. And the, the joke of the city was, the Catholic schools, uh, the nuns graded A for athlete, B for boy, and C for co-ed. That's how they populated their schools. They said, man, the best athletes can come here. And back then, our tuition, everybody knows there was tuition. Uh, the first four kids paid $50 for each of the first four. The rest were free. So, the, you know, once you, you know, one kid graduates, the next kid comes up. So we always had four getting free tuition. And then the rest of them had to pay 50 bucks. So it wasn't as expensive. And there was no busing or anything like that because everybody lived there. It's real close, real close quarters and uh, real dense population. Now, the school only had 110 students, right? And No, we had 123. In oh, it was 123? There you go. In each class, about 125. But most, actually, I'd say more than half were girls because... So which was good for us, <laughs> good for the guys. But uh, a lot of the people sent their uh, girls to the Catholic school because it was safe. You know, everybody thought thought it was safer. And uh, I graduated from a class of 123. So, but now on the football team, it was also small. You, how yeah. many players were on your team? Only like 13, right? Yeah. we had The one year we had 17 guys and the coach is like, man, I must be getting soft. We only need 11. I can't get six of you. I'm trying to work six of you so you quit. 
But we had 17 when we were seniors, and we won the Detroit City Catholic League Championship. So it was pretty good. It was fun. And uh, there, there's a school called St. Ambrose, which is – Pretty famous school in Detroit, and they had all kinds of great players. George Perlis coached there, and a couple other famous coaches. There it is. You got the book. I, I wrote the foreword to that one book. I don't know if that's yeah. the one. So, but so now when now when you get to uh, uh, your school, um, there was a little, there was a little. I would say controversy, but the shoulder pads were an issue, right? I mean, oh yeah. They, you had back then we had red shoulder pads and then white. The white shoulder pads were fiberglass. The other ones red. And nobody knew, you know, what the heck they were. The worst players got the rest red pads. The best players got the white pads. So that was the biggest thing, uh, you know, the day when they're giving you out the the pads they're giving out. You just pray and you get the white pads. <laughs> and uh, that was about it. I mean, it, and everybody just accepted what it was. They were like, I don't, I don't think there were twenty pairs of shoulder pads in that whole school and about 20 helmets. That was it. And then we said, we got a couple extra. So anyhow, it was good. Great coach too. He was phenomenal. I was going to bring it. I was going to bring him up. Talk a little bit about Al. He, he, he had a thing like a real tradition, like because the great in high school were connected. So he'd always tell the, the, the young guys when we were like in fifth grade, you got to start jumping rope and uh, you can't get pads until you, do a hundred straight jump ropes, you know, fast. So you'd see the whole school jumping rope in sixth grade. And it really was a base for everything we did because you had quick feet, balance, all that stuff. So everybody's whole life was, hey, did you get your hundred? Did you get your hundred straight? And kids worked on it all the time, round the clock. I mean, round the year, summer, fall, and spring. And that was it. I mean, we, and we played all sports. Everybody played everything like football, basketball, baseball. We didn't even get tracked till my senior year or junior year. We got tracked that year. So it was different, but um, the kids were close. I remember I went to uh, my first game. I really remember with my brothers. There were three, three of my brothers were on the team, Delamalier, three of my cousins, which were Grobolts. And then we had three of their friends, Venue. So I'm sitting with my mother up in the stands about sixth grade, tackled by Delamalier, thrown past by Delamalier. The guy said, geez, that kid's all over the field. My mother said, Christ, there's three of them out there. And, and same was with the other boys, Venues and um, uh, Grobos. They'd say, man, they got two or three kids. They're unbelievable. They're all over the field. No, there's there are nine of the uh, 11 were related. So th those so, things don't happen anymore. Now, your sister Marlene made your first set of cleats, correct? Yep. She took some nails, like, you know, smaller nails like that, put them in the bottom of it. Then uh, she goes, hey, you can run on these. These are like cleats. They're real good. I said, damn, I hurt my feet, though. Just run in them. Come on. It's not going to hurt you. So I had little bruises all over the bottom of my foot. But, yeah, I used that in my Hall of Fame speech. I said, <laughs> my sister, she was just with us last week. It's Interesting you said that. But, yeah, everything was like anything we could get, we were just happy to have. And people said, boy, you didn't have a lot of money. Nobody even knew what money was. If we got a quarter or, you know, 50 cents, that was going to the – go up to the drugstore and buy a pop and a, a bag of chips. And you split the pop. You know, you drink the pop. Here, you take a sip. You take People go crazy. We Four kids would have one pop, you know, one soda. 
And you know, now the germs, good God, the germs. Nah, I don't think so. But <laughs> any, that's how it worked. And uh, nobody ever got sick. Now, one of the things that Catholic League taught you, which would stay with you your entire life, was toughness. Talk about how it made you a tougher individual. Well, first of all, there's no subs. We had nobody to back you up. And then all the kids who uh, played, they were just hard. It was a factory type city, real blue collar. So the, the parents were tough guys. They, they never played. So most of the parents never played. My dad never played football. He boxed and played baseball. But uh, they had no idea. They just thought the harder you hit, don't, don't come out of the game no matter what. And that's just how – that was the name of the game. It was – we didn't even have a trainer, I don't think. Uh, the coaches taped our ankles. And then we, we'd we only get our ta ankles taped on Sundays. So what do you think? Were the Detroit Lions? You can't, tape, you can't tape you every day for practice. Come on. Jeez. So that, that was just the way it was. And when I went to Michigan State, my mother uh, gave me a jock, like two jocks, a couple towels, a couple T-shirts, roll them up in the thing. Joseph, make sure you shower after every practice. I call her up. Hey, Ma, they give you they give you shirts and jocks. She said, well, who washes them? I said, they wash them right there at the stadium. She goes, oh, my God, I can't believe this. Everything was like bare bones when we played. I mean, it was just nobody thought anything of it. But then when you got to, when I got to Michigan State, I go, oh, my God. They even give you our, our cleats. I used to have to wear my brother's cleats half the time. So, but it was, it was just like a, you know, dream come true. It's like, I always said, it isn't heaven, but it's close to Iowa. You ever watch that movie? Is this yeah. Iowa? It, this is like Field of Dreams, just being at Michigan State. It was great. Now, your, Michigan State wasn't your first choice. You actually wanted to become a Wolverine, correct? Yeah, I did. Bo, I was Bo's first recruit, Bo Schembechler's. And so... I liked him because he was like, he. I, I thought he, my dad would love him. My dad really did like him. He really liked him. He said, man, that guy's a tough guy, but he hadn't coached any uh, Michigan teams yet at that point. So um, it came down to the final day. I go, dad, I want to go. I really want to go to Michigan. And he goes, uh, I don't think so. I can't pronounce that freaking guy's name. I said, what? What do you mean? Yeah. That's Schembechler. Come on, man. Delamalier, you can do that. No, no, no. He says, I, don't, I want you to go somewhere else. Stay close. So I said, okay, I'm going to Michigan or Notre Dame because they were recruiting me. My mother's unbelievable. They're, they're Catholics um, beyond belief. So uh, I go, I, I'm going to go to Notre Dame. My dad, Notre Dame. That's that's precision. He's a phony. I go, well, what do you mean he's a phony? He says, Protestant coaching at Notre Dame. I said, you go to Michigan State because stuff is Catholic. I go, God, you're right. What am I thinking? <laughs> That's how I went to Michigan State. It was my third choice among those schools. But you look back at – I look at that and think what kids would do today, right? They have the hats, and they're going to pick up the hat. and yeah. oh, You might go there. No, you go. You did what your parents told you to do. I, I didn't think twice about it. I said, Dad, I, I don't know what the hell I was thinking. You're right. He's Catholic. I got to go there. That's the only way I went there. And I got recruited in Miami, and Ted Hendricks was our host. And me, and, cool. me, and, me and Chuck Foreman were there, and we saw Namath playing the Super Bowl. I was, that was my senior year in high school. Really? I first, didn't realize that. That was wow. un, first play, first plane ride I ever took in my life. Went to Miami and saw Namath play. Wow. So pretty interesting. Amazing. A lot of history.
Yep. Now you get to Michigan State, and Duffy said, in order to play for him, you have to have three kinds of bones. Talk to us about the three kinds of bones that he wanted you to have. Backbone. What was the other? I know the funny bone was the most important bone. That Wishbone. Wishbone, backbone. And he said the most important of all, a funny bone. And he said, you have those three bones. You may have a chance to play here. So he he said football at the right thing. I mean, every it wasn't like um, he, he wanted the guys to have fun. But he also wanted them to learn lessons from the game of football. It was, re- it was really great. And uh, still have my, my best friends are all former Michigan State teammates. And we've, we've been friends for over 50 years. All of us all stay in contact, about eight of us. So it was great. Really good school. And it was integrated, too, which a lot of the schools weren't integrated at that time. The Big Ten was, but um, – Alabama and those schools, they didn't they didn't even start integration yet until a little bit after that, like two years after that. So it was Michigan State, USC, and you know that those are the two big integrated schools. And then Alabama had so many kids, but those were the big time schools. Um, but anyhow, now now you had some really good teammates in Billy. Jones oh yeah, and Brad Van Pelt. Yep, Dupree, Van Pelt. We had, uh, I think we had 11 or 13 guys drafted my senior year. And um, unbelievable. We had uh, Van Pelt was the Giants' first pick. They didn't have a first pick. He was the first guy in the second round. Dupree and then me. So we had three first-round picks uh, off that team. And then we had guys, you know, Billy Simpson who played for the Rams. He was, he was a junior, but he was a second-round pick. So we had a lot of picks. Uh, that made it in the NFL. One time, I think we were playing in a Pro Bowl. We had uh, six guys from Michigan State in a Pro Bowl. The Saul brothers, myself, Van Pelt, Dupree, someone else. So pretty amazing, that many guys. And we didn't win the national championship. Yeah. No. Uh, Duffy said bad coaching. <laughs> so, but, but anyhow, we we had some great players. I mean, When I went to uh, Buffalo, my wife said, what's the difference between Buffalo and Michigan State, I said, I'm going to be very honest with you. I said, the only difference is O.J. Simpson. I said, if we had him at Michigan State, a lot of the players I played with at Michigan State were every bit as good as the players I was practicing against in Buffalo when I went there. So now you get, once your career is done at Michigan State, you get what you call the greatest phone call you ever received. And that was from Ralph Wilson. Yeah. Well, Ralph, when I got drafted, Ralph called me uh, and said, uh, I, we didn't know. They, when I got drafted, uh, nobody called back then. It's not like today they have uh, ESPN and all that. They, you'd just be rumors. So people are telling me, hey, the Steelers called because George Perlis was a Michigan State coach. And he said, we're going we're gonna to take you in the first round unless uh, they had a cornerback from Florida State. I can't remember his name. If he's available, we're taking him because they needed a cornerback. But they had a high pick in the second round. So they said, we're going to take you with that pick. You're either going to be the our first pick or you're going to be the one real high in the second round. That's all I heard. So then um, when we were there, I a five-credit class the day of the draft. So I told my wife, Hey, I got to go to this class. I got I got to pass it. If I pass this thing, I graduate right on time uh, with four years. 
So I went to the thing, took it, come back. I said, if I'm drafted, leave the door open. Well, the door was shut and the blinds were pulled. So I get in. She goes, nobody called. It was like the longest draft they had in, in the history of the NFL. The, the first round went the longest. And uh, I goes, geez, oh, man, I can't believe it. it I, they got to be on my fourth or fifth round by now. As When I walk in the door, the phone rings. And the guy, hey, we just drafted you. Uh, this is Mr. Wilson. We just drafted you. So I think. I don't know who Mr. Wilson is anything. So I call my dad real quick up at the bar. Hey, I just got drafted by the Steelers. Then I hang the phone up. It was Larry Fels, a sports writer. How's it feel playing with OJ? I go, what? Did I get traded already? No, you're the Bills' first pick in the uh, the second first round pick. I was the 26th pick in the first round. He said, so you got picked in the first round by the Bills. I thought I was drafted by the Steelers. Because nobody identified themselves. Mr. Wilson just said, hey, we drafted you. I said, great. And that's – so I find out like a minute later it was the Bills. So, so crazy story. But Now you get there, and as you said, one of your teammates is a rental, James Simpson. What kind of a guy was O.J.? He was the best teammate you could ever have. I, I, I played with a lot of guys. He, he was a superstar, and he was um, – you know, he was a kind of a – he wasn't built, doing what he was built up to do until that point. But then Ringo came, Jim Ringo came, and he was played center for the Lombardi, and he ran the sweep and all this. So he actually drafted – he handpicked guys that he drafted. I was at the Senior Bowl, and Coach Ringo was there. He, dra he was the reason I got drafted, and no, no question in the first round because – he moved me to tackle for that game, and I played against Wally Chambers, who was a great player. I think he just wanted to see if I was any good against a different type of player. First time I ever played tackle. So um, the weigh-in time comes in. It's not like now when everybody weighs these guys and all this, all kinds of scouts around. The only guy who could see it was Ringo. He's, like, calling out the offensive lineman's weight. I got on a scale that way, 243. Ringo turns around to the scouts. Delamalier, 255. I look at him and he goes, hope we see you in Buffalo, kid. And they drafted me in the first round. God is good because if he weren't there, and he would, he was an undersized offensive lineman who played a long time and is actually in the Hall of Fame, you know, Jim Jim Ringo. And he coached, he coached me, he coached me, Ron Yeri, John Hanna, and uh, Jackie Slater. I say he's a pretty great coach. I don't think anybody has that record of yeah. coaching that many Hall of Fame alignment. So now, now you almost didn't get a chance to play pro football, correct? Right. I, mean, I, I, I flunked my physical. I went up to Buffalo, and they said, okay, you got to go over to the Buffalo General, take your uh, physical. I never had a cardiac cast on in my life. Or, uh, you know, where they put the – like a real heart, heart thing. They just listen to it with a stethoscope. Well, they put me on a machine, and uh, the doctor said, hey, I got to talk to the, uh, the bills before we, we do anything with you. I had flunked my physical. I had an inverted T wave, which means that your pulse goes beep, 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 then it goes under the fourth beep. So that, that's a sign of a clogged vessel or something. This is 1973, too. So... Um, I go back, they said, well, Wilson calls me and says, well, we'll pay for your surgeries, but we're not giving you any money. We didn't, we didn't sign you to anything, So, we'll, but we'll pay for any surgeries you need. So I think 
my wife and I are driving home from Buffalo. We go, geez, can't even play. This is brutal. So my wife said, well, you'll be a teacher or whatever. So I go back to Michigan State and I tell Coach Doherty, I said, I can't play. I flunked my physical. So he calls up the Bills. What's going on? Well, the doctor said this. He said, we're not sending him there. We're sending him to my doctor, a guy from the University of Michigan, which is unbelievable. And he was at the Cleveland Clinic. And he said, that's where you're going to have this thing done. So I went to the Cleveland Clinic like two weeks later. They passed me on physical. They said they made a mistake. There's nothing wrong with you. So from that, I never missed a play, never missed a down. Got to play my whole career. And uh, I, that's when people say, do you believe in God? I said, God has always put me in the right place at the right time. And things have happened. I mean, that that was a miracle that I ever got to play. Because back then, you, you know, they say what they say, and that's it. You're done. But I was—I knew Coach Doherty would—he—he he tried everything he could to get me into the Cleveland Clinic, and I got in within a week, and uh, I was okay. So now you start playing with a group of gentlemen, and for the first time ever, an offensive line gets a nickname: the Electric Company. Talk to us about the members of the Electric Company and why they were so good together. Okay, first of all, we were all Big Ten guys, except for uh, Mike Mahler, but he grew up in um, Columbus, Ohio, and he, he was a Marine. He went at the Marines. They brought him on. He was 26 years old. But Donnie Green played at Purdue. Reggie McKenzie played at Michigan. Uh, Foley played at Ohio State, and I was Michigan State. So how it became the electric company is right out of the box, OJ ran for, uh, I think it was 250, his first, the, the first game. And uh, – to me, I was saying, hey, he's pretty good. But Eric Allen ran for a 375 against Purdue when I was a junior. So that's pretty good. He had no idea, like, what, what was going to happen. Then the next week, he's, you know, all of a sudden, after about six games, he's close to 1,000 yards. So the uh, PR guy, who's the PR guy, Bud Thalman, his name was, he's trying to think of a nickname. And then his uh, little grandson's watching cartoons, and the electric company was on. TV, there was a cartoon. And he said to say, hey, Dad, why don't you call him the electric company? They turn loose the juice. And that's how that nickname started, from an 11-year-old boy watching the electric company. So that's how it became the electric company, turn loose O.J. Simpson. And we turned loose the juice, and that's how it started. Now, O.J. got a lot of his yards running right behind Joe DeLamalier. I mean, you were the pulling guard, and you basically – you know, paved the way. I mean, all of you did, but yeah, you, know, you were. I think, yeah, I think uh, Ringo. He he really copied the Green Bay sweep, and he said, "Look, I have two two guards who can run because they had Fuzzy Thurston and Jerry Kramer." So, you know, they they ran. So he said, "We have the same exact type deal here. Both guards can run," and um, so all we did, we had like only five plays, believe it or not. <laughs> you know, sweep right, sweep left. Then a couple other ones, and then a dive to Jim Braxton. Braxton had almost a thousand yards that year. Big Just guy. In fourteen games, we had. I think we rushed for three thousand eighty-eight yards, which, which is, is crazy. Which is still an NFL record for a fourteen-game season. It is, and Joe Ferguson. Everything he added up there because Joe was from uh, Arkansas, and he had, they call him uh, Arkansas rifle. The guy could throw like you won't believe. But Saban didn't want to put him in that position to be throwing as a rookie. So I think Joe only threw, like, if you look it up, like 151 passes in 14 games. I mean, it was amazing. We ran the ball no matter what. 
and uh, wore the teams out. And uh, we were playing against Miami, and they're doing the same thing with Zonka and uh, Kick. Zonka, Kick, and Mercury Morris. They did it with three backs. But it was interesting. Get to that last game, game 14, Shea Stadium. It's snowing. You've got a chance to do something as a team, as a unit that nobody had ever done before, and that was get 2,000 yards. Yeah, but what we were thinking first is we wanted OJ to break Jim Brown's record, which was 18-something. 1800, yeah. So we said, hey, we're going. once we got that, we said, well, we got that early in the game. Then everybody said, now we're going for two. So going for 2,000. And that's what we did. I mean, we we were running the ball. It, the field was horrible, and OJ was good in bad weather because he's got flat feet. Believe it or not, he if you look at a lot of his games, he had like three games over 200 yards in really horrible weather. The guy he he was an amazing player. But we got the 2,000, and uh, he could have had a lot more than that because uh, what happened was once we got up to Jim Brown's record. Then we started thinking 2000, but he sat out like I'd, I'd say he sat out six quarters that season when we had a lead and they didn't want to play him. I know there was one uh, uh, actually New England. Uh, the first game we played, he sat out most of that fourth quarter and he did it in a couple other games where he, you know, had a lot of Cincinnati was another one that we had a lot of yards and he sat out. But it was early in the season. Nobody, nobody thought in a million years he's going to break Jim Brown's record. Nobody even thought about records then. So pretty interesting. How so, that yeah. At, so at, at the end, he gives you some gifts, some special gifts to commemorate your total effort and helping him break the record and establish a new standard. Tell us about those. Well, what he did is he gave all the guys a gold bracelet. Like this is uh, 1973, a gold bracelet. It was huge. It was like a uh, football, like a quarter, quarter sign with your number on it. Like mine was 68. And then on the back of it, it said, we did it, the juice. But he didn't put 2,000 yards. He put 3,088 because that was a National Football League record and still stands today. Yes, See, yes. So so you think that the guy who broke the record put O.J. Simpson 2,003 because that's what he rushed for, uh, 2,003 yards. And he, he put um, 3,088 yards. That's what we rushed for as a team. So, so. – Pretty pretty amazing that he would do that. And what happened with mine is um, I never wore the thing around. So first of all, when he gave it to me, I go, give me something I can drive. <laughs> where's, a, where's a white guy wear a gold bracelet in Detroit like this? So he, we all chuckled about it. I said, Reggie might like that because Reggie's from Detroit too. But I said, I, I don't want that thing. I hardly ever wore it. So then – we were raising money for uh, the retired guys. So I took it down to the Super Bowl. It was in um, Florida. Miami. I don't know if it was Miami or Tampa. And we we're going to auction it off. I said, here, auction this off. I don't want it. So they put it in a room, supposedly watched. Somebody stole it. So it never did get auctioned off either. So I don't know where it is. It's probably melted. But uh, I gave that thing away because I, I – you know, it wasn't that I didn't cherish it. We we were really hurting trying to get something going for the guys' pensions, and we're raising money, uh, you know, so we can try to get something together so we can get money for the guys and ha have us uh, fight fight our union to get a raise. And we finally got it, but uh, that that bracelet was stolen. From, so I kind of feel bad that my wife says, 
you, you sure you want to give it up? I said, I never wear this thing. What am I going to do? I'm not going to wear it. Somebody, we can use it for our group. So that's what happened to it. Now, now back in those days, um, I mean, we're so used to all the players today making a lot of money. But in the offseason, did you have a job? A lot of players had a job, like, in between their seasons. Yeah, I worked for the Erie County Sheriff's Department. I graduated in criminal justice, so I always thought I'm going to be a coach or a cop, one of the two. So I graduated in criminal justice, and then right away I got hired by the Erie County Sheriff's Department in Buffalo. And we go around and give drug – back then, 73, 74, the drugs were really bad in the schools and everything. So uh, they hired me to go around and talk to the kids about don't do drugs, don't do this, you know. And uh, that's what I did. And then I, I did that for two years. And then a bank, Manufacturer's Handy, Manny Handy, it's called, Manufacturer's Handover, uh, in Buffalo, out of New York. They hired me, and I did that for three years. So you, everybody's always working in the off season. Then we they opened the Rich Stadium. They opened that. That was brand new when I we got there. And they opened it. It was open 24-7, so you could go there at night if you wanted to and work out. So that's what all the guys did. They worked all day, and then we'd go over there about 7 o'clock at night and work out. And those days have changed. I mean, it, it's unbelievable how different it is now compared to what it was when we were playing. But I wouldn't trade it for anything, though, because we, we had such good times. We used to play basketball games in, in Buffalo area, and they pay us uh, – 25 or $50 a game, depending on how many people we got. And we go around and play basketball all off season. It was fun. So the Bills make the playoffs in 74. Um, they also have, have a, you know, basically, you know, that was probably one of the best teams that you played on there. Yeah, that um, was the youngest team, I think, to make the playoffs, too. Yeah. OJ was the oldest player on the team. Other than mine, I think the average age was like 24 on that team. That was the average age of the team. We had all young guys. But but I, I want to kind of move forward to 1976. November 25th, 1976, you guys are playing against the Detroit Lions on Thanksgiving Day. Now, some of the Delamaliers back in 1962 had gone to well, the Detroit Lions always played on Thanksgiving Day. Right. Your dad took a bunch of you guys to that game. And yeah, we, go ahead. No, he made a prediction that day, didn't he? Yeah, he did. My dad did. He's in uh, 1962, he would take the five boys and him from Stroh's Beer. That was a beer company. He, we, They were on tap at our bar. They, they're the uh, beer that we sold on tap, Stroh's. So uh, the bar was just, we didn't have liquor. We just had beer, beer and wine. So the Stroh's would say, hey, you sell so much beer in this bar because it's right across from the factories. He said, we'll give you six tickets to the opening Lions game and opening or Thanksgiving Day game and opening Tigers game every year as long as we do this. So my dad said, hey, we got six tickets to go to this game. The Lions playing uh, Green Bay in 1962. That was a big rivalry, and that was a huge game. So uh, the six tickets, two are like, Nice seats are in the box seats on like 50-yard line in the upper deck. The other four are way up top. My dad gives them to my four older brothers. You guys sit up there. I'm going to sit down here with Joe so we can watch it. So we're watching the game. Lions are killing Sammy Williams and Alex Karras. Those guys have sacks. Dick LeBeau's playing. I can tell you the whole team. And uh, I go, Dad, I'm going to play in this game. 
someday. I just, you know, you're 10 years old. And he goes, when you do, if you took the effort out of my dad's language, you'd be a mute. But, <laughs> but not around women, just that, even when we're with the boys. Huh? When you F and do, I'm going to be there, God dang it. Okay. So years go by. It's 1976. My dad, we see, damn, the Lions are playing the Bills on Thanksgiving. Oh, man, I can't wait. We had over 100 tickets in my family, brothers and sisters. My dad's one of uh 14 or something like that. Yeah, we had tons of relatives. So we had 100 tickets. My dad has a heart attack like a couple weeks before that game. So he's in the hospital during the game. And I tell Coach Ringo, I say, hey, Coach, make sure I get to uh, run to the left. We call it 27 sweep. So, so the announcer will mention my name. My dad's in the hospital. He's watching this game. So Ringo, of course, we run. That's all we ran was sweeps, anyhow. And OJ breaks the record that day at 370 or 275 in rushing. All we did was run the sweeps. But after the game, my dad checked himself out of the hospital, like told the doctor, Hey, I'm going, I'm going to this game. He took a cab to the game, talked his way into the game, and came to it. And uh, I, I go down the locker room after the game. They go, Hey, your old man's outside. What? What are you kidding? He said, no, he's in the hospital. No, go out there. Dad, what are you, crazy? What's, God damn it, I told you what I was going to do. I'm going. I'm here. I said I'd watch it, and I watched it. So we actually went to the bar after that and had a party, uh, the whole family. <laughs> but he made the game. He, uh, he, checked, he checked through the gate himself, talked his way in, didn't have a ticket, and he got his way in there. He, he was. It was a special day. Absolutely. 1978, uh, the Bills trade OJ. 1979 is your last year in Buffalo. Right. September 1st, 1980. Yep, yep. You 1980. You get another I, call. I, 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 I just never got along with Coach. I, I liked him at the first year, but I just he was so different from Saban and Ringo. I had, I, I had the two best coaches ever, I thought. And um, so and just some things were going on. And back then, there were a lot of drugs in the league and stuff, and I – I just, you know, I, I just really felt uncomfortable in Buffalo. And Chuck was starting to trade a lot of my friends, like Bobby Chandler, Jim Braxton, Tony Green. These guys are like my best friends. They're good character guys, too. And he's trading them. So I just said, look, I went to Mr. Wilson and Ralph, and I said, you know, I don't want to play here anymore in Buffalo. And I love Buffalo. It was, I, I am Buffalo. I still love Buffalo. But I, I don't want to play for Chuck. So it was a problem all through uh, camp there, you know, They'd say, like, you know, I'm a malcontent and stuff like that. I've never been malcontent in my life. And uh, so September 1st came, and they said, if you don't report by September 1st, you put on the did not report list. So I, I had a plan. I said, okay, I know Chuck will be so pissed at me, Knox, that I'll come in and he'll he'll, he'll trade me or cut me. I didn't care which one he did, but I know I could play, and I know I'd get picked up. So I, September 1st, I reported and then they said, oh, Chuck wants to see you upstairs. And then I go upstairs. Hey, I thought you were going to be a tough guy. You weren't going to play anymore. I wasn't. I didn't want to play for you. But I'm not going to give up my career for you. So here I am. I was traded before I hit the door. He, he, thought, he, he thought he punished me and traded me to Cleveland because they were bad back then. But we went to Cleveland, and we led the league. In, uh, Brian Sype led the league. In, uh, for, he was the first 4,000-yard passer because we were doing stuff that Cleveland never did like line play stuff, slide protection. He had the least number of sacks, and he threw for 4,000 yards. 
and we won the AFC Central, which was impossible back then because they had Pittsburgh, Houston, Cincinnati, Kenny Anderson. And when I got traded to Cleveland, reporters said, um, they traded for you. Sam said they traded for you because they need somebody to block Joe Green. So I go up because that's what I played against. I go, Sam, maybe I can block him. Maybe I could do. But don't ever say that in the paper. I said, I got to play against a frigging guy. Just let it drop. So anyhow, I went there and we, we played and we won the AFC and things were great. Now, one of the things about that team was the nickname was the Cardiac Kids. You guys yeah. won a lot of games you know, in the last minute. All the time. It was amazing. I had, I, I played on two teams that were incredible. Brian Sype was an MVP and uh, OJ was an MVP. And we did it two different ways. One, we threw passes. The other one, we ran. So it's pretty unique. And we had, that was a great team too. We had Ozzie Newsom and Logan and um, Reggie Rucker, two Pruitts, Mike and Greg and Kelvin Hill and Brian and, Man, it was it was a good team, really good. And I thought we won that game. All we had to do was kick a field goal and beat Oakland. But then Oakland went on and beat Philly easy in the Super Bowl. But that was my only shot at a Super Bowl. I thought with that team. But anyhow, didn't make it. But anyway, so at, in 19, um they do you a big favor. They return you to Buffalo under Hank Bullock. Yeah. Um, what was it like going back to the Bills after after your Cleveland? Well, actually, I had a couple opportunities to go to different places. And um, I said, no, nah, because back then you got claimed on the waiver wire. I think New Orleans and New England, a couple teams claimed me. But I said, no, no, I, I just want to go back to Buffalo. I, I started there. I want to finish there. So then that was a bad year. Hank was a, uh, a Michigan Stater. So then I – I, the people in Buffalo liked me and I, the management liked me. It was just the situation with Chuck Knox. And so I came back and I played and we really sucked. We, we had no quarterback at all, but we had some pretty good players, Bruce Smith and um, Tally and Fred Smurlos and those guys were there. They're, they had a good team. So I went up, uh, I was watching the game. Uh, I didn't bring my family up. That was one thing that was tough. Cause my wife, we had four kids at the time under like, 10 years old. And um, so she just stayed there. She goes, I'm not, because we knew I was going to retire because it was 13 years. and uh, The league was getting bigger because, and I mean physically, because guys were taking steroids and growth hormone and that. And I wasn't going to do that. And I said, I'm not doing that. I'm not If I got to take a drug to play, I'm not doing that. So I went back to Buffalo and, and uh, it wasn't a big deal, but they, they weren't pressing guys to take drugs or anything, but a lot of teams were. So I was there, and we were like, I think we were like two and whatever. We were playing San Diego out there. But it was Monday night. I was watching Monday night by myself in this uh, room because my family's uh, down in Charlotte. We moved to Charlotte. And Theismann broke his leg on that uh, LT tackle and broke his leg. And I'm watching that game by myself. I go, that's it. Huh? I'm done. I'm not playing football anymore. Because I know that I'm not playing anymore because this is my 13th year. And my daughter was going into eighth grade. That was it the next year, my oldest daughter. I said, I'm not playing. So I went to Hank and I said, Hank, I'm going home for Thanksgiving. He goes, oh, no, you, you know, you don't, you can't go home. We'll fly you home and come back for the game. I said, no, no, I retire. I'm done. I don't want to play anymore. What? I said, you got a great team here, but you need a quarterback. We're never going to win. I'm, I know that I'm leaving after three games. 
I hate to go blow a knee after 13 years in that league or break an ankle when I never had a surgery. To this day, I've never had a surgery. So I just, um, Hank actually had me call Mr. Wilson and say, it's not his fault why I'm leaving. And he said, tell him what you told me. I said, Mr. Wilson, you got a great quarterback, but he's playing for the Houston gunslingers or whoever they were. He had Kelly. I said, all you do is got to sign Kelly. You're going to have a great, you're going to have a great team for a long time. And they did. They signed Kelly after that year and the rest is history. They went to four Super Bowls, but they had that team. It was all set to have a really great team until Kelly got there. They needed a Kelly. They needed a quarterback. And Kelly was a perfect, perfect match for Buffalo. A hard nosed Pennsylvania guy and, he could throw in the wind. So God was good to him too. Now, now when you retired, um, yep. a couple of things. You were one of the most decorated, most honored offensive linemen of all time. Eight all pros, six pro bowls, 1970s, all NFL decade team, ring of honor, both in Cleveland and in Buffalo. But probably the most impressive thing was you played in 185 straight games. You never missed a game. What was the key to your longevity? Actually, uh, and that's including exhibition too, because I we played them all back then. When I got um, drafted by Buffalo and I played for Coach Ringo, uh, like two or three years, I really invented, you know, started looking up his history. He played in 183 straight games, never missed one. He's undersized. We were the same type of personality. And uh, I said, I said, Coach, man, you played 183 straight games. He said, and you're going to break that. I go, yeah, right. And I ended up breaking it at 185. But he was a big factor in my life as a coach. And then my biggest honor in football was I won the Forrest Gregg Award in 1977. And that's given to the best offensive lineman. Um, voted for by the defensive players and uh, coordinators. No, no media, and I won that. I got that award, and they only give it out to, you know, very few players. And I, when I met Coach uh, Greg at the Hall of Fame, when I finally, when I got in, he said, "Only me and you know what that award means." I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "You're the only offensive lineman off a losing team to get that." And he said, "That meant a lot." He said, "That was a big deal." So. I, I, I'm really appreciative for uh, Ringo and uh, the, the guys who paved the way for us, like Forrest. Those guys are those guys played for Peanuts, and we did too, but not compared to them. And they set the standard for the league. You know how how it's supposed to be played. You know, you didn't find all the stuff that's going on now. I said to Coach, or I said to Dick Buckus one time. Uh, we were at a thing, and somebody said, what do you think about these uh, guys tackling a guy and doing, you know, pounding their chests and all this? Dick, or uh, Coach uh, Buckus said, you know something? When I tackled the guy, I just looked over my seat, uh, shoulder to see if the son of a bitch is going to get up. He said, now they tackle the guy, they do a cartwheel, point to Jesus, and pound on their chest. He <laughs> said, that's a different game than we played. And that's how I feel about it, too. I Nothing bad about these kids. They're not kids. These young guys, they they just doing what they've seen. But we played. I played what I saw. How I how those guys played. Alex Karras and you know, 
All, all the Joe Schmidt, Carl Bretschneider, those players, those were my heroes. So different, just a different time. And the other thing I got to mention too, because everybody says, man, the, the salaries are huge. We opened Rich Stadium. We were the first, we had the first game in there. And my wife had a baby and she couldn't go to the game. So she had a ticket. Know how much a ticket costs? On the 50 yard line, 40 rows up, perfect seats, $7.50. Jeez. So could you imagine that ticket today? I think it's about two or 3,000. So I understand, I understand the economics of it. But the part I didn't understand about the NFL is the guys who built this league were not being taken care of. My, my pension until a couple years ago is uh, $1,275 a month for 13 years. And guys below me, Leroy Kelly, I know a lot of guys, probably they made less than that. And that's wrong. When everybody else is making money and your guys can only make $1,000 a month, basically, and we, we got bumped up a little, but it's nowhere – not even close to baseball or basketball. And this league is was built on the backs of uh, – back then the, the league only had like uh, 33 guys on the roster. It's not like 70 guys. You know, when they have a cab squad and they somebody gets hurt, they can come out. You had to play. And if you didn't play, you were gone. There were no guaranteed contracts. It was just the way it was. I signed my first contract, he said. 22,000. That was my first five years. 22, 24, 26, 28, 30,000. And Harvey Johnson is a GM. He goes, and let me remind you, son, it's only one game at a time. I go, what do you mean? If we don't like you after the first game and we cut you, we don't owe you a penny. They don't, they don't even know the 22. They owe one fourteenth of 22. You know, you only get paid one game at a time. That was it. Now they have all these contracts, million-dollar contracts. I'm reading these linemen, million dollars. I make that my whole career, not even close. But guess what? I, I wouldn't trade my life for the world. I got six kids. We have four of our own. We adopted two Korean boys. We raised two black kids and a white kid. And we raised nine kids, and they've all graduated from college or trade schools. So screw all that money. I always tell my kids, screw, screw the money. You, you got to – you got to live your life. And half these guys who are married, they, they got a couple wives. I've walked to school since first grade with my wife and we've been married over 50 years and she's better looking than any woman I've seen. And I don't know if you met her. She's yep. unbelievable yep. looking. She's 70 years old. She looks like she's 50. Totally but anyhow, we, we've had a good life and I love football and yeah. I love Namus. When we go to Namus things, I, everybody, Oh, wow. No, I can't. I went to Namath Singh this year. I came back. Know what the biggest deal I had? I met Bobby Orr. Yeah. I go, damn, I met Bobby Orr because I'm a big sports fan. I couldn't believe, you know, uh, how young he looked. He's 74 years old. He's three years older than me. He looks like a kid. And those, those are the things. And Chi Chi Rodriguez, you know, tells you a golf story. All, all those things. Are, that's why I love Namath. There's another guy who's humble. He's, he's really a good man. He really is. He really and, is. And people think, well, he made that commercial. <laughs> They're saying everybody's teasing about the commercial about, uh, you know, what, what's the commercial about? Uh, healthcare or something he's on. And uh, everybody's teasing about that commercial. You don't need Medicare. What are you making that commercial for? But he's just, he laughs it off. And then he gives like a million dollars to kids he, that he raises. It's, it's unbelievable what he does.
It is. It is. And you're a big part of that, and you help them tremendously. Well, now, I stink at golf, but I, I can talk guys into coming. Uh, you sit there and you tell stories, Joe, and we all love it. We all, you're a raconteur. You tell us all. Well, thank you. One of the things also that, um, you know, you had the courage, you know, back in the mid-2000s uh, to take on one of the most powerful men in football, Gene Upshaw. And Gene was the president of the Players Association. And you, as, as you just said, were very vocal about the retired NFL pension plan and health care plan. And he actually threatened you. What was that like? Well, when he threatened me, I wanted to go kick his ass, to tell you the <laughs> truth, because I know I could. And no, but my college roommate was dec- uh, director of the Secret Service at the time. Uh, we were teammates, or teammates at Michigan State. And I go, God damn, that pisses me off, the punk. You know, he goes, hey, all you do is say, all he does is scary, all Gene does is scare women and little children. And just drop it at that. Don't say anything. Don't, no threats, no nothing. And I, I didn't, that was the hardest thing I ever had to do. Take, take some, he said that in a Philadelphia paper. You want to, I'd like to break his neck to me. I said, that would be the day. But anyhow. That that's something of the past, yeah. but I, I could never understand how a guy could play in the league. And I'd say this to him all the time. You play in the league and you gut it up and grind it out like everybody else. Now, when he died, he was making $19 million from the players union. He had that in a, a like future payouts, you know, deferred compensation. That's what he had in it. $19 million. Yeah. How in the hell did you get that? You're right. You're a left guard. You know, you're just you're just one of us. And all of his buddies are doing great. They're all doing good. All the guys in the union, they they they're uh, laughing it up. And the rest of us, he just could care less. It didn't matter who you were. We we got the greatest players in the league playing, getting nothing for their pensions. Leroy Kelly, yeah, I, he's a legend to me because I grew up in Detroit and we used sure. to watch him all the time. And then he backs up Jim Brown, and the Browns didn't miss a beat without Jim Brown, who might be the greatest player of all time. And Leroy is making minimal amount of money uh, from pensions. And he's uh, one of many. And you and you did a lot of things to help. Now, we tried. Was- yeah, we did as best we could. I'll tell you who really helped was John Reagan's wife. Because she she got these women together. Once the women started complaining, then the NFL is, whoa, you can't have the women complain because you know how it is now. The women yeah. complain, people listen. A bunch of old football players complain. They think, ah, those guys were millionaires. And those are the people who had to suffer. The women who husbands didn't have health care when, when they're done playing. And you don't you don't even know it, uh, Lynn, until you're 55, 60 years old. Then all of a sudden, all the pains start. You know, why, why, hey, you retired from 35. You're, you're okay till you're about. 20 years go by and then then after that it's rough and that puts such a strain on the family that i felt sorry for the wives and the children of a lot of guys not so much the guys we we had our fun but those 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 people don't deserve to be treated like that and we and we made it better so we i feel proud about that that we got it a little bit better you did a lot now one of the things joe that is a big big topic within the football community is cte and it's something that 
players never realize that is even a possibility when they're playing. Would you take us a little bit through exactly what CT is and the kind of the history and how it's affected you a little bit? Okay, well, it's, it's basically what it is is plaque on your brain. Tau is called. Uh, that's that's what you get. It's continuous hits the head. You get like a plaque on your head, and then it causes uh, Alzheimer's and dementia and all that. And uh, there's a lot of different things, and it affects people differently. And I was diagnosed with that with Dr. Model. I think it was 2009 or 2006, one of those. Anyhow. It was me, Tony Dorsett, Mark Duper, and Leonard Marshall went. And we were the first guys to get tested at UCLA. And I was the first one to go in. And uh, they came out and they said, we will, you know, we'll talk to your wives, talk to their, the families. So uh, Dr. Amalo called my wife and said, uh, you know, Joe's got, um, he was diagnosed with uh, CTE, which is, you know, that's plaque on your brain. Anybody who hit a lot, and we hit a lot. You're going to have that issue. But I never drank, never smoked, never worked out all the time. I did all the right things. I checked all the right boxes except getting hit in the head all the time. So I went there and uh, I got diagnosed. I got, uh, he said, you got CTE. And so, you know, the NFL says well, they don't uh, count CTE. And I, I think I'm pretty good. But what I have is uh, dementia. I'm in the, uh, stage two or stage three of dementia. And they said, damn, you're doing good for 71. But as you see in this thing, sometimes I get lost on words uh, where I, you know, can't, oh, him and all. But you, you, that progressively gets worse as you age up. And, um, you know, I, I do all kinds of things. I, I have all kinds of, I go to get my brain checked all the time. And I, um, at least two or three times a month, or uh two or three times every couple months, which yeah. makes 12. <laughs> See, there you go. That's what I'm talking about. I, about uh, every three months, I go get my brain uh, checked and see how I'm doing. And I'm progressing good. But they said, you're doing good, too, because you're married to a wife. Uh, my wife is a nurse. So she watches everything I do. It's like, damn, I can't do anything. She makes sure that I, you know, stick to the uh, to the store, you know, to the line, do exactly what she says as far as health-wise. And I work out every day. I, you, my son, we have a company which we do stuff every day with kids, and that keeps us young. We do we work with kids and seniors, and um, makes a difference in your life when you help other people. It does, and that's you've done something like that all of your life. Yep. Now, yep. do you think the NFL has addressed the CT issue adequately? Or do you think they're starting to do that, Joe? They're, they're starting to do that. And they're helping the current players better, more than they help the guys who built the league. I know a lot of guys who I played with, man, they're not doing good. And you're seeing all kinds of guys die lately. I mean, a lot of Hall of Famers have passed away lately. Claude Humphrey and Curly Culp. And, um, Dr. Mahler made a really interesting point. He said, uh, the closer, I said, how do you know what CT is? He said, it's continuous hits to the head, basically. He said, who gets hit in the head more than anybody? I, was, I said, truthfully, the center, because they put a, a nose guy on these guys, and then the, as soon as they snap the ball, they head slap them. Well, guess what? The NFL says no more head slaps. Why did they do that? Because they knew that all of us were having problems. I can't hear out of my left ear. Right-handed defensive lineman. 
It's simple things. And uh, the, the, the closer you are to the ball, the more brain damage you're going to have. It's going to be the center, two guards, linebackers, uh, fullback, and safeties. And those are the guys who are really having the collisions when we were playing. Uh, you, you, you play against a guy like Doug Plank and um, Jack Tatum and those guys. They were like scud missiles. They they come flying up and hit, try to knock the blocker down. They the first place they go to is hit you in the head. And then we had the wedge. There's no more wedge in football. The four guys in the back. Oh, I can't have that. It's too dangerous. How do you know that? Well, a lot of those guys are hurt and can't think. Well, thank you for you know uh, noticing that. But let's take care of the guys who played those years all like that and got all these injuries and they didn't do that. Yeah, of course. Now, do you think that the changes they've made with the CBA, I mean, nowadays in the NFL, they don't even put on pads during the week, Joe. I, I actually think that's good. I don't, I don't, I'm not one of these guys who say, oh, they, they weren't as tough as we were. We didn't know any better and neither did the coaches, but now they do and they've corrected it. So I give them credit for that. But, uh, you know, how they treated the retired players, uh, uh, I'll never forgive them. I won't forget and I won't forgive because I, all, a lot of my friends are dead. Who uh, You look at the centers in the league, Mike Webster, Tom DeLeon, who played with me in Cleveland, uh, Bill Lankaitis, Forrest Blue. These guys are all dead. They're centers. And uh, Mike Motler, I played. These are five or six players out of one position. That doesn't make sense. It's true. They're getting hit in the head all the time. That's the problem. Curly Culp is dead. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, he wrestled and everything. Curly lived to 76. But yeah. everybody had issues with this. And nothing was done. But science has come a long way, too. So, you know, but I, I think they could have helped the guys a lot more than they did. People who want to learn more about Joe and what Joe is doing now and all of the great things he's done in his career can follow him on Facebook. He's got his own Facebook page. And also, Hall of Fame Solutions, the website. Uh, talk a little bit about that. You do that with your son, Todd, correct? Yeah, we have, um, we have four children. Then I, we adopted two Korean boys. So this is my lone son. He's a twin. He's got a twin sister. But we've been close forever. And uh, he played at Duke. And he, he was a good player. He was captain at Duke. He went to Officer for grad school and played there and got cut by the Colts. He's like the last cut. Uh, and then, uh, you know, he couldn't make it. So he said, I don't know what the heck I'm going to do. I said, you graduate from Duke. You do anything you want. He said, yeah, you're right. I'm going to be a fireman. Then he goes, Dad, I'm never going to wear a tie, ever. So he became a fireman, hurt his shoulder. Uh, it was from football in the fire department. So he had a couldn't be a fireman anymore. And he got a disability for that. So we were trying to figure out what he, you know, he was trying to figure out what he wanted to do. So we we started a, a company with uh, Jody Bands where we have bands and we work people out. And he is an unbelievable teacher. And we we do it at the hospitals here in Charleston, South Carolina. And we do, a, he also, Tip of the Spear, which is a new way of blocking. Cleveland Browns used it. We, we do, we teach uh, clinics on that. Different way of blocking, getting your head out of the, yeah, yeah. Pull your head back, hit your hands up a different way. Total different technique. The Browns used it the last two years, and two years ago they had three pro, all pro players, not Pro Bowl players. And uh, 
These guys had never done anything until they learned this technique. And we teach that to high school kids. It's the key. Try and do something to help the kids because coaches don't know anything about it because it's it's a new technique. And uh, the Browns use it. And the kid from um, the Colts, the left guard, he's awesome. Number 56. Can't think of his name right now. But Nelson, his last name's Nelson. He used it. And he was all pro as a rookie. And they're different. That's a different type of blocking, and it makes a huge difference uh, keeping the guys healthy. Uh, Joe Delamalier, you've always made a difference in life, not only on the football field, but also to those around you. I want to thank you very much for taking the time to be on overtime. Um, please continue to do what you're doing throughout your entire life. You're an example for everyone, and be well and be healthy. Okay. Thank you very much. I enjoyed meeting you. I told my wife, I said, I met a real guy on uh, Namath's bus. She goes, <laughs> what do you mean? I said, he's he's a throwback. This guy's really great. And you are. So I appreciate it. I appreciate it, buddy. Thank you. Okay. okay thank you very much.